This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. My name is Stacy. Thanks for joining us for today's tale of marital misadventure. I'm Alicia, and we are headed back to old Hollywood today with the most scandalous event of the summer of 1936. So what are you bringing us today, Alicia? The trashy tale of Mary Astor, her loves, her parents, her husbands, and her scandalous child custody case that rocked the summer. <laughs> this whole affair is so famous or infamous, it even has its own encyclopedia entry. I'm going to pull that here to preface this. Okay. Significance from encyclopedia.com. The Mary Astor case is a classic Hollywood divorce case. It entertained newspaper readers for weeks with charges, countercharges, and denials, and offered wondrous titillation and breathtaking insight into the daring illicit romances of people in show business. That is what we love. This case reads like the scenario of a Life in Hollywood movie. <laughs> Aren't you into it? I'm into it, yeah. Every day, Mary Astor writes the book, Let's Go, Go, Go. Okay, Alicia, hop us into a time machine and, and tell the people what's going on. Today it is time for the trashy divorces tale of Mary Astor, the actress who made it successfully from silent films to talkies. And Mary Astor may not be the biggest sex symbol. She was a little too classy for that. But Mary Astor, prolific, made more than 100 movies in a 45-year career. Wow. She's an author as well, but it is really Mary Astor's four marriages and three divorces, but mainly focusing in on that 1936 custody battle in one of those divorces that was front page trashy news. The coverage of that trial fascinated the public for weeks with its accusations and denials and, oh, there's even a getaway car. <laughs> Holy cats. Mary Astor's life at this point, was an insight, right, into a particular lens of the business that we call show. This particular quote by Mary Astor is too good not to use, so I'm going to put it up here at the beginning. She writes, So I went on, blindly and childishly, never learning from my past mistakes. I have always found the world surprisingly compassionate about mistakes. People may laugh a little, but... It is a good-natured laugh that says, All right, that was a bad one, but come on now, let's go about our business. And that, I suppose, is simply because everyone makes mistakes, and most people learn to profit from them. Is it even a mistake until you've done it twice, though? <laughs> right. Mary continues, Too early, I became a valuable piece of property to my parents closely guarded, closely watched. I was not permitted to make decisions, so I didn't learn how to make decisions. 
I escaped the desperate flight of a child into an unwrapped and unknown adult world, and I rushed headlong into nothing but trouble. Our kind of girl. Let's get into it. Mary Astor was born in Quincy, Illinois, May the 3rd in 1906. She's a Taurus girl. Mary was the first and only child of Otto and Helen Marie, but Mary doesn't start out as Mary. She begins as Lucille, Lucille Lanicky. Dad is a German immigrant who doesn't have too reliable of an income. He teaches some German. He does a little poultry farming. The imago in this story, the relationship you're always trying to work out, right, is off the charts in this one. This is Mary and her parents throughout her entire life. The thing here with Otto and Helen Marie, as soon as Mary looks like she's cute, her parents are going to cash in on their daughter until Mary cuts them off, but we have a ways to go before we get there. Anyway, at 13, Mary's parents, realizing what a young beauty she is and liking the idea of their kid pulling in the dough instead of them, will enter their daughter into a contest. And it's by mail. And Lucille is a semi-finalist. There are some other contests, too. Lucille is really, really pretty. By the time she's 14, she's given her first screen test made by Lillian Gish. Uh-huh. Lillian Gish is so impressed with Lucille, she records like 10 hours of film with her or something. Hmm. It's amazing. Jesse Lansky is going to sign Lucille to her first contract for famous players, Lansky, and Luella Parsons, famous gossip columnist, will help Jesse Lansky rename little Lucille to Mary Astor. Mom and dad need Mary to make it, and boy does she. Mary's going to make her film debut in 1921, and through the silent film era, Mary makes 45 films. I guess that beats teaching German in Illinois or whatever. We can live off our daughter. Yeah. I mean, within two years, Mary Astor's a star. And silent films are still the thing. And there's no bigger star in the world at that time than acting legend John Barrymore. In 1923, John, who is 41 years old and taking advantage of a child sees a picture of Mary, who's 17, and he chooses Mary Astor to be his co-star in Bo Brummel. This is a big deal. Barrymore, again, premier actor of his day, being chosen by him is a big deal. And even Barrymore at this time is telling Mary, your parents are totally taking advantage of you. You are their meal ticket, like to the point where she gets a $5 allowance a week when she's making thousands of dollars a week. Barrymore's like, Mary, you have to stop this. Mary doesn't listen then. So John and Mary become a thing on screen and off, but Barrymore really can't handle it because her parents are just so strict. He's like, come on, Mary, get it together here. She cannot go out alone. She gets that $5 a week in allowance. I need you to know there's always an element of parental in this story for Mary, even though right now she is a 20-year-old woman, right? And the breadwinner of the family. 
Yeah, laws to protect child actors and other actors come later. Mary buys her family a home called Moorcrest. This is in Beechwood Canyon. Mary's going to sneak out one night, climb over the gates just to run away. She ends up getting talked back to coming back with mom and dad for $500 in a bank account. She has made hundreds of thousands of dollars. It is terrible what her parents do to her. Mary, in time, thank the Lord, gets a little bit of independence. That is when sweet and tender Kenneth Hawks, Ken Hawks, this is the brother of Howard Hawks, and Mary fall in love. And Ken Hawks, he's so sweet. The two meet. They marry in 1928. And Mary, huzzah, gains a little bit of independence by becoming a married woman. Mm-hmm. Sadly, Ken Hawks dies filming a World War I airplane scene. He's a film producer. And his brother, I think, was famous for his airplane films. That's exactly right. The Hawks brothers, huge deal mm-hmm. at the time in movies. But it's really sad because Ken dies while filming a scene in 1930. Little spider web here. Four years earlier in 1926, Mary begins building a love nest in Laurel Canyon, a little home on Appian Way with a big future. Patreon folks, stay tuned for your spider webs coming at the end of this episode because there's a little bit of an attachment there that's awfully fun. A little California dreaming. Okay, back to Mary. She makes her first talkie in 1929 right in between the two years of marriage to Ken Hawks. As talkies go, Mary's going to make 50 more movies by the end of the 1930s. She's a busy lady. Mm -hmm. But also, at the tender young age of 23, and now a widow, just finding any part of her own independence, Mary will turn to the good doctor who's not very good at all. Dr. Franklin Thorpe. Dr. Franklin Thorpe is 14 years older than Mary. And he is adoring and patient and wonderful to sweet lost widow Mary in the world. Good bedside manner, we might say. Well, at least through the courtship and dating phase, which only lasts five months. This is a quick takeover because Dr. Thorpe really likes Mary's money, too. Mary and Dr. Thorpe get married in 1931, and pretty quick into this marriage, oh, Mary Astor is not a happy girl, because Franklin is not so patient anymore. Franklin likes to call out all of Mary's faults constantly. Good, good stuff. Which, I mean, her parents did that too, so let's, yikes, Mm -hmm. all bad. To add insult to quite literal injury. It is also a violent marriage. Franklin is prone to that violence. Mary will have a child, a daughter, Marilyn, who will become important and the focus of this coming custody case. Mary really does try, but two years into this marriage, 1933, she knows it's over. Not helping are Dr. Thorpe's numerous affairs with men and women, But old Franklin Thorpe is not giving up that easily because he has established his own medical practice with her cash. And he likes the money, honey. He's kind of a gold digger. So what's Mary to do? 
they have a child and she can't file for divorce, it would ruin her career. She would be declared an unfit mother. She's not about to let her daughter out of her custody and given to the loser that she's married to. Just not going to happen. Mary's going to go see a lawyer who agrees with all of Mary's logic here and advises Mary to have a little bit of patience. He's going to do something to call himself out so you'll have reason to file suit against him. Just be cool about it. Cool your jets. Maybe, Mary, just take a little trip. Take a little holiday. Go to New York City to visit your friends. And Mary will. She's going to head to New York City to visit her friends Bennett Cerf and George S. Kaufman. Mary thinks, certainly, this will take my mind off of things. And this is where the trouble begins, my friends. See, in 1933, George S. Kaufman is the absolute toast of Broadway. Honestly, kind of the literary world. The year before, in 1932, George S. Kaufman has won the Pulitzer Prize for drama with Of The I Sing, shared with Morris Riskind and Ira Gershwin. But still, huge deal. Oh, George, he's a member of the Algonquin Roundtable. Wow. He got his start in journalism young, but George is also a famed playwright and producer. Also, huh, he is called Public Lover Number One. That's his nickname. Which would be fine, except George is also married. George is also super in love with his wife, Beatrice. But George and Beatrice know that it's an open marriage. George doesn't shy away from a life filled with many partners, including many a leading lady in his lifetime. Again, public lover number one. George is not necessarily breaking any rules here. George and Beatrice stay married until her death in 1945. But this is 1933, and hmm, Mary Astor is thinking an available married guy where it just is what it is. This could look attractive to Mary, who could use a little stress relief. George is not truly available. He's not going to leave his wife, but mm-hmm. we could have a little fun. He's pretty cute without his glasses. He's really interested in me as a human person, not just what I could do for him. Right. Also, he's terrific in the sack. So no one has anything to lose here. Why not, Mary says, and really, why not? We're going to leave Mary here, about to make some very important diary entries. Hmm. As we take a quick commercial break, we will see you on the flip. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay, friends, so Mary will take that trip to New York City, and Mary, like so many of us, journals. She writes in a diary. The legend here is that Mary has a purple diary, but she wrote in purple ink. Whatever the visual looks like in your trash panda head, I want you to picture sweet Mary writing upon her return home to Hollywood in a loveless, violent marriage that she feels trapped in. Mary Astor writes, I did meet a man, professional, somewhat older and rather well-to-do. Only his first initial is G, and I fell like a ton of bricks, as only I can fall. That was six months ago, and it's still good. We write to each other often, about every two weeks. Flowers and telegram for Christmas and New Year's. Once, when Franklin was away, he called me long distance, and we talked for half an hour. His last letter finished with, Think of me, my darling, because I certainly think of you. There's another trip to New York City. This one gets the write-up in purple ink. I am still in a haze. It is beautiful, glorious. I hope it's my last love. Can't top it with anything in my experience, nor do I want to. So all this time, though, she's sort of waiting for her husband to make some public mistake that would give her grounds to leave him? Ish. She knows she can't. It would it, it right. wouldn't be a good look for her to leave, but she can have a little strange. But, I mean, she's a movie star off gallivanting with public lover number one in New York City. I'm seeing this might go badly. It goes badly. It goes real badly. So here in this New York return trip, Mary sees rehearsals of Kaufman's current play. Mary hears Gershwin play the his new score that he just wrote for Porgy and Bess. What? She'll write, only 10 days, but enough to remember the rest of my life. We went to 21. We drove through the park. We dined at the colony. We saw life begins at 840. We went to Rubens. We talked and laughed and spent lovely nights at the Essex house. This is not the life Mary's living in Hollywood. And I want to go ahead and add in another stressor here. Because we already know that Otto and Helen Marie, Mary's parents, are living lavishly, taking nearly all of her salary, and now they're pulled up in that home Moorcrest in 1934, as all of this is about to shake down. Mary (laughs) and her parents sort of get in a lawsuit a little bit. She will put them on an allowance 
unable to continue to support the mansion and the estate that she had provided for them because they won't go work. They just still want to live off her. Her parents will sue her for non-support. Wow. Mary says that from 1920 to 1930, this decade, she says, I gave my father $461,000 while I kept 24000 that is half a million dollars she brings in. Yep. She keeps 24K and 461 goes to her dad. <gasps> Yikes. The nerve of suing your adult child for non-support when presumably they're still working age. When she's bought a home for you. When mm-hmm. yeah, Mary agrees to pay her parents $100 a month and the suit was dismissed. So think about everything Mary has going on. Terrible marriage. Battles with parents, dreamy, dreamy lover in New York City. Of course, you'd make notes about the feelings you feel, the events of your life from then and before, too. I can imagine that affair gives Mary a little respite. And even though George isn't leaving his wife, Mary with Franklin Thorpe has had enough. She can't afford to be patient any longer. So in 1935, Mary's going to pack up her bags and take herself and their daughter, Marilyn, moving right out. But Franklin Thorpe is not going to give up that easy. See, months before, Franklin had found Mary's diary. Mm. And he knows where she keeps it. And he reads it on the sly. And Franklin knows exactly what Mary thinks about Franklin in all the ways. His performance in the sack his phenomenal ability to spend her money, Franklin's penchant to get ahead socially because of who he was married to, all of it right there, how Mary really feels. Franklin also reads about the mysterious G, who was George Kaufman in the diary. But Franklin doesn't know that this George Kaufman thing is only a fling. George isn't leaving his wife, but Franklin... Who really wants to put the screws to Mary? Without understanding the full picture, he is going to sue Mary for divorce. He also makes it crystal clear that I'm suing you for divorce and I don't want you to contest it. I want your property. I want your money. I want our kid. And if you don't go along with my demands, he makes it crystal clear that he now possesses that diary And I will reveal everything in this diary, telling all of your secrets, as well as every other secret you've written down about everyone else in Hollywood. I will ruin you and your friends. Nice guy. Mary, between a rock and a hard place. In April 1935, Franklin Thorpe sues Mary Astor for divorce, charging, get a load of this, mental cruelty and incompatibility. Mm-hmm. Mary doesn't contest it. She's too afraid. She's being blackmailed. So Franklin gets custody of their daughter and $60,000 in property and real estate. And Mary can visit Marilyn. She can have her for up to six months throughout the year if she wanted to. But Mary really doesn't come out on top with this. Franklin has taken her to the cleaners both financially and emotionally with mm-hmm. taking custody of their daughter. Sure. By 1936, I mean, things are looking up for the United States. 
almost coming out of that Great Depression. Prohibition has been repealed. Sure, Hitler's causing some problems in Europe, and King Edward VIII is carrying on with American divorcee Wallace Simpson, but pish posh. Things here in America, all going great. Except for Mary. Mary's done. She's not going to sit by and be blackmailed. And she knows that taking Franklin on in a custody battle would be ugly, but Mary wants her kid. Maybe, Mary asked her, is still a little mad. She knows her ex-husband to be violent and ugly, and Mary wants to solve this problem and get her kid out of that situation. Right, and he made her the, the bad guy in this divorce, which was not her intention, I don't believe. So it is off to court. Da-da-da, 1936. Mary goes to her lawyer. Her lawyer files a brief with the claims that Franklin Thorpe blackmailed Mary Astor into giving up her child and has also abused the child. Even more scandalous. (laughs) The brief alleges that Franklin is already still common law married to the wife he had before Mary Astor. Oh, wow. And never told her about. And has also had numerous affairs with, again, men and women. Franklin's lawyers, of course, counter using parts of Mary's diary. This was their big idea, is to make Mary, to your point, the bad girl in this. And as a journal writer myself, it's this sentence that they use to make Mary sound terrible, but I really identify with this sentence. I am such a muddle-headed person that I love to tie myself down, my thoughts down, so they won't go skittering off in all directions. That's why you write a journal. Anyway, Franklin Thorpe is ready for this trial. And in so getting ready for the trial, he begins leaking parts of Mary Astor's purple-penned diary to the press. As I said, nice guy. Mary, meanwhile, is attempting to film... During the daytime, she's making a movie called Doddsworth and prepare for the trial. And every assault and arrow is coming down on Mary from her ex. And when the leaked diary portions get to the newspapers and the press, guess what? The Hollywood studio heads are panicked. Capital P, all capital letters, bold exclamation point. They want to know if... The diary names the names of their stars. Right. What could be in it? Whose careers are going to be ruined because of this? So we make it to the trial. Scheduled on the court docket to begin July 28th, 1936. This trial is covered by Flora Bell Muir. This is a daily news reporter out of New York who will make anything and everything known. She has zero qualms about printing salacious stuff which Florabelle will see the diary, photograph it, and proceed to make the contents of the purple pages even more sorted. She makes up new stuff that isn't there. She's not upset at all about embellishing. Nothing like a little journalistic license. So Florabelle is going to phone her transcript in for reporting the next day. The trial is about to start and it's published, but oh no, Mary's distraught. She's like, I'm going to lose everything. Not only my kid, but any career that I might have had because Samuel Goldwyn, her boss, can easily pull out that old morality clause to screw her equally as good as her ex-husband is. 
And now that all of this has hit the press, the studio heads, the other studio heads are coming to Samuel Goldwyn. Like, you have got to have Mary Astor drop this. Even if the stories were made up, this is still the press and what's being reported, and it is not A-OK for the Hollywood head honchos. Mary Astor will testify the night of July 30th, providing her account of her ex-husband's unsuitability to parent their daughter. Mary testifies. He was a harsh disciplinarian. He shook Marilyn so hard her teeth rattled and cut her lips. Then he'd spank her and there would be bruise marks on her little body. It's not going great for Franklin Thorpe at this point. Friday night comes around. Remember, Mary's filming in the day, testifying at court at night. Friday night, August 1st comes around. And Mary is now asked about the diary that is being brought up for the first time in court. Isn't this G fellow George S. Kaufman? <gasps> Gasps from the court. The defense wants to introduce this diary to prove that Mary is an unfit mother. Naturally, of course, she left her husband for George S. Kaufman, which is decidedly untrue, but hey, the games people play. But now, George Kaufman's name has been brought out into the open, slung up and all this nonsense. I'm taking this bit from the encyclopedia entry because I think it does a good thing here. Anderson, this is Thorpe's lawyer, had fired a shot heard round the world. Headline writers outdid each other, shouting that renowned playwright and director George S. Kaufman had been named in Mary Astor's diary as her lover. Thorpe had the diary, dating from 1929. According to Anderson, its presentation as evidence would prove what everyone in show business knew, that Kaufman's sexual appetite was as great as his well-known appetite for work. Of course it is. He's called what? Public lover number one. Yeah, good lord, this isn't a big mystery. <laughs> okay, continuing from the encyclopedia. And the diary, written, the press reported, in purple ink, would reveal a scorecard by Mary Astor on the performance in bed of almost every well-known actor in show business. Astor's lawyer, Roland Rich Woolley, you can just see that, yep. uh, you can see that character, yep. told the court he wanted the diary produced by the defense's evidence to prove that it was not such a compilation of titillation. Mary Astor says the book was a forgery leaked to the press. Sam Goldwyn, Jack Warner, Irving Thalberg, Louis B. Mayer, and Jesse Lasky and their lawyers tried to convince Mary Astor and Roland Rich Woolley that it would be entirely better for the entire movie industry and especially them and Mary for her not to use a diary and to just drop it. Could you please just make it go away? Okay, story's heating up, right? And now George's name has been mentioned in court. And wouldn't you know, George is in Los Angeles right then. Hmm. Thorpe's lawyers demand that George S. Kaufman show up and testify in this case. This is Friday night, okay? And believe you me, oh, Thorpe is waiting like a cat to eat his canary for Monday. Monday, Monday is all I think it's going to be. We're going to get George Kaufman in court and he's going to get called out. And my wife's humiliation of me will be put into the world for all to see. This is 
Franklin Thorpe's Manic Pixie Dream Weekend of Revenge. The press has a whole weekend of salacious to build up into this. I mean, it's just, whoa, it's so much. The most explicit extracts appear in time, which quote Mary's testimonial to her thrilling ecstasy, quote unquote, with George, who fits me perfectly, my exquisite moments, 20, count them diary 20. I don't see how he does it. He's perfect. Public lover number one. So now court's out on Friday night and everybody's trying to find George because the judge has issued like a bench warrant or something for George to come Mm -hmm. and appear. Everybody knows George Kaufman typically prefers to stay at the Garden of Allah Hotel. (laughs) I love the spider webs in this story. We have covered the Garden of Allah a little bit here on Trashy Divorces in detail over at Done and Done. Anyway, Garden of Allah, Black Pool, Palm Trees and Bungalows. Of course, the press is going to find George Kaufman there, who plays it like Mr. Super Cool, Mr. Nonchalant, saying, I'm just a friend of Miss Astor, like many others in Hollywood. I'm most certainly not involved in her difficulties with Dr. Thorpe. Did that work? No. (laughs) The press is not fooled. And George is going to say to his friend and collaborator, Moss Hart, when the press leaves, after this trial, nobody will remember anything I've done, only that I screwed Mary Astor. But it's nice to have friends. So what happens? Moss Hart is going to get his friend, George Kaufman, into a big old laundry truck hamper and smuggle him out of the Garden of Allah Hotel to get back to New York City with a quickness. So he fled the jurisdiction? Is that what you're saying? Yes. There is also another account here with a little bit different of a story from the encyclopedia. I'm not sure. Either way, George is out of town. But there may be a little bit of a different way this happens. So Judge Goodwin J. Knight. Judge Knight is our judge in this case. Examine the diary. Several pages were missing. It was a mutilated document, not admissible as evidence. Thorpe's attorneys got Judge Knight to issue a subpoena that would force Kaufman to testify in court about his relations with Mary Astor. Irving Thalberg, for whom Kaufman was working, put Kaufman aboard his yacht, sailed him off to Catalina Island, and said the playwrighted disappeared. The judge issued a bench warrant for Kaufman's arrest. Kaufman sneaked back, hid at Moss Hart's home, then was hauled into a large laundry basket aboard a laundry truck to the San Bernardino Railroad Station, where he got on a train to get back to New York. After staying in his berth the entire trip, he said, that's the best way to travel. (laughs) So far too late, the judge issued a search warrant for Moss Hart's home, declaring the bench warrant will hang over Kaufman's head always. If he can be cited, I'll sentence him to jail. We're only on the second day of this trial, and it is already eclipsing the 1921 coverage of the Fatty Arbuckle Mm -hmm. affair, which contended with both rape and murder. Mm -hmm. Here, 15 years later, this trial is called the worst case of dynamite in Hollywood history. What happens next? I don't know. We're going to tell you right after we take a quick break. (laughs) Back in a minute. 
We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Okay, now that George is out of town, the diary now being introduced is called into question, right? What's the chain of evidence? The judge, after going through all the he said, she said crap about the custody of the diary, will disallow its use. Chain of custody can't be proven. There are pages missed. Like, what? You guys didn't even, like, nobody can really count any kind of clear, direct diary chain. Right, but he's been using it to argue in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. Right. Furthermore, the judge goes on saying any person in that diary that doesn't have anything to do with the custody trial that we're here to have can't talk about. We'll have the protection of the court. Groovy. Dr. Thorpe is not pleased. It's about to get worse for him. So Mary Astor cross-examined again she calls her ex-husband out, saying, you knew everything about George Kaufman from September of 1934. He had nothing to do with our divorce. You are a petty, petty man, and you're only doing this to hurt me. Thorpe gets on the stand and has to admit that, yes, before marrying Mary Astor, I lived in Florida with another woman in a common-law marriage. Uh, I never divorced her, so I could still be married. Thorpe continues to get called out his own infidelities. He's been having this affair with Norma Taylor. Norma Taylor chases Dr. Franklin Thorpe down with a carving fork in front of Marilyn, his daughter with Mary Astor. Oh, wow. Okay, that's... So things are taking a little bit of a turn for Mary here, right? Fireworks. Who, again, is working in the day and going to the trial at night. Until after this big meeting with Irving Thalberg and Sam Goldberg and Warner and Mayer, they call the judge. And they're like, listen, Judge Knight, hey, man, we have this movie in production, Doddsworth, and Mary's looking really haggard. There are 500 people working on this movie. That's a lot of mouths to feed, Judge. You'd feel bad if we have to halt the movie and those poor dogs and kids and families can't eat or pay their bills. So the judge is like, all right, we'll put the trial on hold for a week so you can finish your movie. Oh, my God. (laughs) I love this story. So they do. Everything in the trial halts for a week. Mary's able to finish filming the movie. Everybody's back in court Monday, August 10th. Now that the diary has been thrown out for actual use, Franklin Thorpe's attorneys are questioning Mary about the men named in the diary. If we can't use the diary, we're going to use the source information from the diary to really stick it to you, Mary. But what happens? Mary Astor? She's composed, cool, calm. She handles it like a champ. What has she done? She is channeling her character from Dodsworth that she just filmed all last week, later saying about that character, She was a lot of things I wasn't. 
She was a lot of things I would like to have been. She walked tall. She made no unnecessary gestures or movements. She was cool. This new Mary Astor character is not the haggard, intense woman of two weeks before. And what happens? It throws off the defense. You know, he doesn't know what to do. Mary Astor is rattle-proof. There's no, like she is channeling something very different and come back to be on top of this. More details come out about Dr. Thorpe's abuse of the child and again, the witnessing the child has done for his terrible behavior and the terrible behavior of his lovers to them. Also what Thorpe has done to Mary Astor. By August 12th, Judge Knight is over it. All the press, all the bad behavior from attorneys, just breaking rules. He's like, I'm halting all of this nonsense. <laughs> we are here to figure out the welfare of this child, not relitigate mm-hmm. this divorce that is already done. Stop making it a circus. Everything needs to stop about this circus. <laughs> Judge Knight, this is Wednesday, August 12th, gives everyone to the weekend to clear this off his docket. He's not doing this past Friday, so y'all need to figure it out. Sure enough, the next day, a settlement is reached, which Judge Knight happily signs off on because Judge Knight is the one who dictated how the settlement would work and what he'd sign off on. Marilyn, the child in question, is to be with her mother for the school months, with dad for vacation and weekends. Costs and consent is split between both parents for teachers, governesses, nurses, schools. And with that, it's <laughs> over. Little bit of a whimper for all the banging that yep. happened leading up to it. But what happens to all the players here? George S. Kaufman, after getting in the laundry basket or the yacht or what have you, he will never see Mary Astor again. And George will always get a little uncomfortable when her name is mentioned. Interesting. So no more Sundays in the park with George. No more Sundays in the park with George. The bench warrant for Kaufman's arrest did continue, but six months later, George Kaufman will go visit the judge and pay a $500 fine, and they shake hands, and George is out of any kind of courtroom legal peril. Again, George remains married to Beatrice until her death, but I do want to talk about another affair George had, little spiderweb, with Natalie Schaefer in the 1940s. Who was Natalie Schaefer? She played lovey Mrs. Thurston Howell on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> nice. All right, what happens to the diary? Judge Knight keeps the diary in his safety box, I presume, at the court. Judge Knight is going to hold on to that purple-penned diary until Marilyn's 21st birthday in 1952. And on Marilyn's birthday, the judge takes that diary out and burns it in front of witnesses, never to spill its purple-inked secrets again. That's uh, an interesting outcome of evidence. Well, they kept it almost 16 years. Like, if right, anything else needs to he happen. didn't offer it back to no, what I it. think everyone agreed was the author. Okay, that's fine. Maybe Judge Knight liked a little trashier reading when he was in his chambers. I don't know. 
Marilyn, the daughter, the center of all of this, what happens to her? Marilyn will actually attend boarding school. She'll go to Westlake from 7th to 12th grade. Remember, Mary Astor is still a working actress and had to pay for Marilyn and her parents, who never quit taking her money. Not only that, you ready for this bit? After providing for her parents her entire working life, Mary Astor's mother leaves Mary Astor her own diaries for Mary, her daughter, to read after her death all filled with how much she hates her daughter, Mary Astor. Oh, my God. Like, you really feel for Mary Astor here. It's quite a complicated portrait when you take into account all the different things happening for Mary. And for Mary, it did and does and will continue to happen in her life. It turns out that Dodsworth was a smashing success with the public coming in droves Mary Astor, for being concerned that this would hurt her reputation, in fact, Mary becomes even more popular. The trial does not diminish her at all. Her most famous role is still yet to come, that of Bridget O'Shaughnessy in The Maltese Falcon, starring opposite Humphrey Bogart. But again, Mary, a prolific career, totaling 109 movies through almost five decades. But that's not all. Mary Astor will get married and divorced two more times in her life. Next up in the husband department is Manuel de Campo. He is a Mexican sportsman. They do have a son together. That marriage lasts from 1936 to 1941. A few years later, post-World War II, 1945, Mary Astor will marry a businessman named Thomas G. Wheelock. No kids here This marriage lasts about 10 years. They divorce in 1955, but I want to benchmark a few things here. In 1951, Mary Astor, after many years of hard drinking, will go to Alcoholics Anonymous and be able to find some comfort and support in that, although her drinking will continue. Mary also, at this time, allies up with the Roman Catholic religion and becomes a later in life convert to Catholicism. Hmm. This is in the middle of this last marriage, which again doesn't work. But in the demise of that marriage, 1954, Mary Astor is one of the stars in Hollywood who's not afraid to attempt this newfangled thing of television. She's one of the very Hmm. first old Hollywood stars to be like, yeah, let's see what television, I I can act, I'm fine, Let's, Hmm. let's play. It is in 1959 when Mary is in therapy dealing with some of all of these complicated things that her doctor suggests she begin to write for therapy. I can imagine after that whole diary debacle, you'd be a little hesitant to write too much, but Mary will. (laughs) In total, Mary will write five novels, Hmm. an autobiography, and a career memoir as well, all really well-received in the world. Hmm. Mary Astor retires to the Motion Picture Country Home in Woodland Hills in 1974 and proceeds to support that Motion Picture Country Home with the income she makes from writing. Mary Astor passes away at the age of 81 years old, September 25th, 1987. What a life, Mary Astor. 
I love that story so much. Trash cans, I don't even feel good about that. She's such a modern woman mm -hmm. with such terrible parents. There's so much Imago. How about this? I'm going to put my trash can count and my halo count in my diary. And you can assess your own in yours in whatever color ink you'd like. That's great. It's like a true crime story, but uh, the body <laughs> count is non-existent. I love it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Patreon folks, do stay tuned for Spiderwebs. We're going to talk a little real estate, some mamas and the papas, and also a little bit more about Mary Astor's daughter, Marilyn. Just a little bonus on the back end of this episode that you get for supporting trashy divorces at what? Two bucks a month. If you like what we're doing here and appreciate us 50 cents a week worth, <laughs> you too can get all of our episodes early and ad-free with some spiderwebs too. We are headed over to Laurel Canyon in just a moment. But as always, we got your ears covered. Don't forget about Done and Done, as well as Trashy Royals. We can provide some other fun podcast listening if you're searching for a new summertime series. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in today, as well as for your kind emails and reviews. And telling your friends. And telling your friends and your support at Patreon, of course. We will be back this weekend with another Trashy Divorces story. We will. Best community ever. And until we meet again then, keep those hands clean. And keep your hearts trashy, friends. Have a great week, everybody. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us. Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all. <laughs>